Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our virtual service here at Sailorville Church. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I was just back in the tech uh, room, and there's uh, upwards to 1,500 plus of you that are watching right now, and maybe more coming on. Thanks for doing this. It's unusual, we realize. We wish, as Curtis mentioned in the song set a little bit earlier, we'd love to be with you in person, and Lord willing, it might not be long before we're back together again. Uh, just to let you know, those of you that are joining us, we are a Bible-believing church. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, soul-winning, disciple-making church. We're also a sinners, or that is, full of sinners type of a church. That is, all of us are sinners, none of us are perfect. We do preach from a perfect word of God, even though our words aren't always perfect. Our motto here at Sailorville Church is, more people, more like Jesus. That's really kind of the grid that we put everything we do through, that little motto right there. We're also, by the way, an elder-led church. An elder is, is a pastor. That's what I am. I'm the lead elder or the lead pastor here. Uh, but as such, as an elder-led church, because we have, uh, we have many elders here, are all of the major decisions that we make, including you know, whether or not we assemble as a church, uh, comes through the collective leadership. And because uh, this particular decision that we have for these next few weeks is to meet virtually, it's not really a chapter and verse thing. I mean, people will differ, and we even differed and wrestled over this, as I've mentioned before. We even brought our deacons and even some of the, of the, of the leading women that we have in our church involved just to talk these things over. Uh, so these decisions were not made arbitrarily. They were made with much prayer, consultation, just a lot of struggling just to make sure we were before God doing what he wanted us to do. So these aren't easy decisions, uh, but we have a peace about them. Uh, we've, I just want you to know as we make our way to the message today, we have, we have taken very seriously into account not only our Iowa governor's mandates uh, and all of her concerns for the hospitals and our health workers, uh, but the science as, as we think we know it, uh, our exemption uh, as a church uh, that differentiates us from the business community and how they might respond to us and much, much, much more. Uh, as I've said uh, to some of you, who, whether you agree or disagree with our sense of God's leading, I am, I am convinced of this. If you could have been a fly on the wall in all of these elder meetings, which we incorporated many other uh, forms of leadership in our church, you would not have disagreed with the spirit uh, that uh, was there as we wrestled through these things before the Lord. So, that said, uh, in this Thanksgiving season, I want to just go on record publicly to say thank you for how grateful I am for uh, the team of Christ-honoring men and women that I have the joy personally to serve with. And one more thing, thank you, the Sailorville Church, your response, even from a number of you who would have chosen differently than we did, has been overwhelmingly supportive, overwhelmingly loving, and overwhelmingly uplifting. So thank you a hundred times. Thank you. And with that in mind, I'd like you to take your Bibles uh, that, uh, while you're there in your homes and open them up. We, we want to look at the Word of God in this very intriguing and very powerful passage, really the only stern warning that the Apostle Paul gives to this church and uh, there are some implications that this particular area of sanctification they were struggling with. So 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the first eight verses. Here's how it goes. Finally, brothers, which by the way, I get a chuckle when I read the word finally because Paul did this when he wrote the Philippians. Finally, and just like there, two more chapters. Anyway, finally then, brothers, we, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. That no one transgress and wrong. Those are going to be two power words that we're going to look into more deeply after a bit. His brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I want to talk to you this morning, as I come into your living rooms or wherever you're at, about the life of a beautiful believer. My wife and I were somewhere, I don't remember where we were, some venue somewhere, and it was a couple of years back, and she was looking at this woman who she'd never met, and she was across the room, and I saw the woman as well, well-dressed lady, and uh, Marilyn said, she is so pretty. The reason I tell you this is because that lady had to be in her 80s. She wasn't a 20-something. My wife was clearly seeing something I wasn't seeing. Ray Steadman, great man of God now with the Lord, in his commentary on this passage says, God is designing beautiful people. The beautiful people of God understand God's will is our ongoing sanctification. And it might not have anything to do with the way you look outwardly and probably doesn't. If you've been around the Sailorville community for any period of time, you know that I have personally, uh, I like simple descriptions, simple definitions. And when it comes to sanctification, uh, sanctification is, uh, is adjusting yourself to God. That's what it is. It's, it's as we walk with God, because it's an ongoing process, we're constantly making adjustments. And adjustments require change. That all of us change is a given. If nothing else, age alone will change you. But God wants us to be constantly changing as we, as we, as we look into his face, even as we sung just a few moments ago. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from, from one level of glory to another. So how is, here's a question for you. How is COVID-19, this, this season of pandemic, call it what you will, how is it transforming you to look more like Jesus? Because that's the will of God in your life if you are a follower of Jesus, as I am, and in mine. 
He wants us, no matter what's going on on the outside, to be constantly transformed from the inside out. But the kind of sanctification that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is much more pinpointed, and we're going to get to this. He's dealing with our morality, for sure. <laughs> In fact, as I, I, I got into this week, after we've been through all of these things, you know, making adjustments as we go as a church, I realized the text I would be preaching, which dealt with sexual purity as well, and I made the comment, boy, this doesn't seem really congruous with what we've been dealing with. And <laughs> uh, our, our tech manager said to me, well, people don't stop sinning just because there's a pandemic out there. Well, point taken. In my Bible college days, and really well into the early years of ministry in the middle 80s, upper 80s actually, of pastoral ministry, hardly anyone was talking about dealing with sexual sin until they, until they actually had to deal with it. Just the other day, I went home because my wife was watching some of our grandkids, and I, I, I stopped into home, and my, my granddaughter saw me. She said, she said, Papa, she said, would you play Pretty Princess with me for like five minutes or two? <laughs> I took the two. <laughs> anyway, I sat down with her, and, and this particular granddaughter, the word she uses almost every time she starts a sentence is the word actually. In fact, we're, start, we're sitting down there at the board, and I said, I, I think I'll take this little peg as my marker. She goes, actually, you should have this one. And then I, I spun the dial, and I said, well, okay, so should I take, I, that means I need to take up this necklace, which she said, no, actually, you should take up this one. And she, she gave me a different, and she just continually used the word actually. Well, this passage of scripture that I just read might look like new instruction that Paul was giving to the Thessalonians, but actually, it's not. In fact, if you'll look in verse 1, he says, uh, as you received, verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you. Uh, skip down to verse 6, where he says, as you were told before. In other words, the Apostle Paul is actually just reminding them of something he's already said to them. Because he's obviously seen the culture that they live in and the way in which some of them were actually living. So Timothy's report, if, you were, if you've been with us, you know that Paul was, he was run out of town. He was anxious to see how these Thessalonians were doing. Timothy went to Thessalonica, came back and said, they're doing great. The word of God is thundering forth. People are, are coming to Christ. It's a wonderful thing. But the report was not entirely good. Some of these Thessalonican believers were actually, and now the cuteness of that phrase goes away, they were actually resisting Paul's teaching, actually giving in to their own passions and to that of the culture that was around them. And speaking of culture, the Thessalonian culture in the first century was, make no mistake, a Roman culture. It was a Roman outpost, a major one at that. And the first century Roman culture in any major metropolis was absolutely decadent. Cicero, who was a famous Roman statesman, intellect, orator, and a visitor, or frequent visitor to Thessalonica, wrote these words, Let not pleasures always be forbidden. Let desire for pleasure sometimes trump reasonings. This is from the intelligentsia of the day. Now, time, 
our time this morning. And the fact that I'm coming into your homes for the most part is going to prevent me from divulging the extent of that decadence, that awfulness. But suffice it to say, as uh, the Pillar series commentator Gene Green writes in his commentary, quote, the message of sexual purity would have been a hard sell in Thessalonica. It's a hard sell in our culture. I mean, look at verse 5 again. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul is saying, I, I know the culture could care less about purity, but God cares much. And the tenor of verse 8, look down to the very last verse again. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The tenor of that is that they were resisting Paul. They were pushing back. They, the, there, were, there were a number of people apparently in the Thessalonican church that just while they came to know Jesus, the culture that they were so accustomed to, so grotesquely immoral, they just they couldn't help but wander back into it. Can you relate to that? The word sanctification used here in verse 3 is also translated holiness in a couple of other places in verses uh, 4 and 7. Actually, all those words, sanctification, holiness, and holiness as translated in the ESV, in the English that is, they all come from the very same Greek root word. Uh, the word basically means to be different. It, it, you could even translate it otherliness, although that would look really weird in an English translation. But that's the idea. Otherliness. We often say that the word holy or sanctification means to be set apart. That would be another legitimate translation. It's the same root where Jesus said when you, when you talk to God, when you pray. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. That's the word. Set apart. Otherly. Different. I mean, you, you know what it's like, ladies, those of you who have really nice things set around the house, that you have stuff that your kids can grab a hold of and play, and you got stuff that's set up, that's set apart, that's otherly, you don't want them to get their hands on. I mean, one of our grandkids grabbed one of those things, and my wife calls them, no, honey, you can't have Nana's pretties, <laughs> because they're just otherly. You don't get to play with those. That's, that's sort of the idea here. Here's a question for you. When you think of holiness... What comes to your mind? When you think of a holy person, who comes to your mind? Or what, what makeup of a holy person comes to your mind? Listen, let me tell you something. Holiness is not a stuffy word, like many of you have probably got to thinking that it is. It's not. It's not only a biblical word, it's a good word. It's a word that should be in our vocabularies. It's a word repeated throughout the New Testament. Peter, as, as, as he who called you is holy, so be holy, Peter says. So what comes to your mind? You want me to tell you what comes to God's mind? Beauty. Beauty comes to God's mind. You remember what the psalmist said? Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Holiness is not legalism. 
It's, it's not one's high standard of living. You may have a very high standard of living and be completely unholy. It might be the very opposite of your high standard of living. I think it was Moody who said, lighthouses uh, don't blow their horns, they just shine. Rachel Joy Welcher, in her just-released book titled, Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality, she argues that, quote, practicing purity is a form of worship. Which, if you're following Welcher's argument, that could be idolatry. When teaching her children, Welcher writes that she refuses to tell her children that, quote, virginity makes them pure. That's interesting. Our goal, Welcher writes, is, is never, quote, chaste Pharisees, but imperfect disciples. Around here we say more people, more like Jesus. Not exactly like him. We, we won't, we, we got to wait for glorification for glorification, Okay. The beautiful believer is one who refuses to give in to a culture of perversion. Instead, he or she conveys, now listen to this, an irresistible beauty as one who knows, who loves, and unashamedly acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That makes one holy and beautiful. So what I want to do from the balance of our time in this text is talk about beautiful believers. Beautiful believers, three things about beautiful believers. First, they live to please God, not themselves. Now that might seem patently obvious, but it might not be patently obvious in your life. I often ask people, ask others who look at you and examine your life, what, what comes to their mind when they think of you. The Bible says in the very first verse, in the, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, how you ought to please God. You receive this from Paul, from Jesus. How you ought to please God. Now, they were doing that. He was confident that they were. One writer cause, calls uh, pleasing God, quote, the number one subject in the curriculum of the Holy Spirit. I like that. Pleasing God, number one subject, in the curriculum of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said in John 7? He said, I always do that which pleases him. So if we're going to be more like Jesus, we got to be pleasing God. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, uh, he said, we ought to live for him who died for us. More and more. Beautiful believers live to please God. And in so doing, watch it, they draw others to God. A man came to Moody, D.L. Moody, the great preacher of, of the uh, 19th century. And he came to, I know this sounds crazy, but he came to Moody and he said, I have lived on the Mount of Transfiguration for five years. The idea was, I've been so close to God. In my, he just wanted Moody to know that. Moody's reply was, have you led anyone to Jesus while you've been up there? The guy replied, no. And Moody said, when a man gets up so high that he cannot reach down and save poor sinners, there is something wrong. 
So I don't know what you think of holiness. That ain't holy. God wants our beauty as followers of Jesus. Not only to cause us to be attracted to God, but others to be attracted to us. Two weeks after I became a Christian, I read for the first time in my life, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verses 19 and 20, where the Apostle Paul writes, What? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I remember in that moment, I knew right there, right then, and forevermore that my life was no longer my life. It was God's. And I've had to constantly remind myself of that, lest I trip into that selfish mode where I make it about myself. And when that happens, dear follower of Jesus, when you get to that place where you live to please God, not yourself, that's a beautiful thing. And you can become a beautiful believer. Here's the second thing I want you to see from this text. Beautiful believers are committed to grow, not just know. They're committed to grow, not just know. The great sin of American Christianity and the culture that Christians live around is that we have raised up an entire generation of hearers rather than doers. We love to study. Get our hands on those books. Read, study. Get into the, you know, the minutiae of the text. Tear it in like a dog on a ball. But whatever happens, whatever happens when we consume the truth of God that should be exalting, should be Christ-exalting, should lift us up, and should cause us to do something with it that changes the culture around us. Is it possible that what's happening in our culture right now is an indictment against the church itself? I wonder. Many of us know theology, but we don't know God. Your knowledge of theology won't get you into heaven. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let the one who glories, the one who boasts, the one who brags, brag about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. That's how Jeremiah put it. I remember years ago, sitting in a church, and the pastor invited an old Southern Baptist pastor to the pulpit. He was an old guy. He kind of he he had a struggle as he walked into the pulpit, and, and uh, he thanked the pastor. He looked at all of us, and he said, he goes, you know, I'm just an old Southern Baptist preacher. And we Southern Baptists, we don't know much. And then he paused, and we all kind of smiled. He goes, then he goes, but what we know, we sow. <laughs> it was so good. And then he went on to preach a powerful and lived out message. I was totally leaning in. Why do I go on and on about we're committed to grow and not just know? Where's that in the text? Well, you could miss it, but I don't want you to. Again, verse 1, the very end where he, says, where he says you ought to walk and please God just as you're doing. Now watch for it, that you do so more and more. 
Now, those of you who've been following us know we didn't spend a lot of time on that little prayer at the end of chapter 3, but you want, might want to just let your eyes gaze up there to ch- uh, chapter 3, verses 11, where it says, Now may the God of our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that, you, or so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Do you notice this increase, abounding more and more? And if you just skip, your, skip to chapter 4 and verse 9, where we're not going to go, we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Well, at this point, you'd say, well, then why are you, why are you telling us to love one another, Paul? Because they're already loving one another. But look what he says in verse 10. For that, indeed, is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do so, or to do this, more and more. Beautiful believers are committed to grow, not just know. And when I was studying this passage of Scripture many years ago, this thought came into my mind, and I quickly wrote it down, and I have been saying it around Sailorville for over 20 years. God wants me to do better at what I do best. If I have that mindset, if you have that mindset, that's a beautiful thing because you'll never become static. You'll never become complacent. You'll never, you know, we're like a lot of Christians who, who are, you know, they're, they're saved, sanctified, and galvanized. I mean, you're there. You're never going to change. There's just something wrong if that's the case. Beautiful Christians are always growing. Just the other day, a dear sister in Christ in this church reminded me, when we say about ourselves, that's just the way I am, or, or worse, I can't change, or if you're a parent, and you say of your kid, hey, look, this is just, this is just the way she is. She, yeah, she's going to be that. That's, that. Just expect that. That's the way she is. You are, what's happening is, this dear saint just reminded me of this the other day. You're, you're actually claiming, either for yourself or somebody else, an attribute that belongs only to God. And it's my favorite attribute of God. It's, my favorite attribute of God is, is that he is immutable. He never changes. He never mutates. I'm glad, you know, God doesn't change his mind about me or he'd change it a hundred times by now. God never changes. I am the Lord. I do not change, Malachi said, right? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. He never changes. But you and I, we're designed to change. And if you want to be a beautiful believer, then you need to be committed not just to know, but to grow and growing requires change, and that's what we call sanctification. Titus, Paul says to Titus that we are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, you can't add to the doctrine of God, but you can adorn it. You do it with a life that takes the truth that's come in and lives it out. And when that happens, that's a beautiful thing. So, Beautiful believers live to please God, not themselves, are committed to grow, not just know. And finally, 
are controlled by the Spirit, not their passions. You show me a Holy Spirit-controlled man or a Holy Spirit-controlled woman, and I'll show you a beautiful believer. Let me ask you, what area in your walk with God are you struggling with right now? Some of you are stubborn. And this whole pandemic has, you know, has, has just revealed your stubbornness. Did you know that stubbornness is idolatry? Did you know that? Some of you are high maintenance. If you're a high maintenance person, that's just a synonym for being childish, petulant, and immature. Are you jealous? Are you angry? Are you covetous? By the way, Paul told the Colossians, covetousness is also idolatry. Are you proud? And then for a big group of you, this question. Are you lustful? I ask all of that, and I could ask many other questions, because sanctification, generally speaking, encompasses all of our lives. But admittedly, the Apostle Paul puts a laser beam on the one area that so many, and particularly men, struggle with, sexual immorality. Now, parents, you're probably thinking, oh man, isn't he going to put out a little caveat at this time? <laughs> Look, you don't need to tell your kiddos to go to the next room unless you're unprepared to address this to them on whatever level they're at. Because God's not hiding anything. Are your kids reading their Bibles? It's right there. God's not hiding it from them. Okay, here's the short of it. Sexual activity of any kind outside the bonds of marriage between one biological man. Sorry that I have to put the, you know, the adjectives in here, but we just have to. And one biological woman is sin. Again, sexual activity of any kind. Outside the bonds of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman is sin. That's not beautiful. That is ugly. I remember Elizabeth Elliot hearing her one day say that you don't lose your virginity. You give it away. Nobody loses their virginity. We give it away. There is a beautiful time that we are to give our virginity away. And it's called Christian marriage. And blessed are those who wait. Blessed is the one who waits. But I know that many of us, like myself, did not. If you haven't waited or didn't wait, like me, you know the guilt, and some of you are still living in it. But in Jesus, there is hope of forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. Again, Paul to the Corinthians listed this just giant list of sins they were guilty of in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9 through 11. And he says, he says the unrighteous aren't gonna, are not going to inhabit the kingdom of heaven. They're not going to get it. They're not going to go there. 
And don't be deceived. He lists a whole bunch of immoralities, including fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and the like. Then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified by the Holy Spirit who applies the blood of Jesus to our lives when we trust him as our Lord and Savior. Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? Because that's a whole new deal, a whole new principle, a whole new power that comes into your life surging from there. That doesn't mean believers don't mess up here because they do. But that's because, like some of these Thessalonians, we start to morph back into the culture. But our goal is to become a beautiful believer, one who understands sanctification and holiness. Listen, I don't have a problem with those who haven't waited or didn't wait, because that's a lot of us are in that. My problem is, is with those of you who won't wait. You refuse. You hear the truth. It's coming at you now. But you're still fighting. You're still resisting. You're missing out on God's beauty. That's what you're missing out on. And you're acting out. You're missing out on God's beauty. And you're acting out as an unbeliever. In fact, look at verse 5 again. Look what he says. He says, abstain, verse 4, from uh, sexual immorality, that each of you know how you ought to control his own body in holiness and honor. And then verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So if you continually refuse, you're acting out as an unbeliever. In fact, if you're in the won't category of sexual sin, just put, your, just put yourself down right now as unsaved. Just put yourself down as lost, unsaved, going to hell. Because God is in the business of, of creating beautiful believers who are changed from the inside out and go from won't to will. Because it's, remember, I just thought of this, it's God Philippians 2 says, it is God, watch this, who is at work in you, both to do and to will for his good pleasure. Have you ever read that? There are two words in verse 6 I want to camp on for a moment here. They're power words, and I don't want you to miss them. Verse 6 is a little confusing when you read it. What is he talking about here? But So let's look at it again. In verse 6, he says, that no one transgress and wrong, those are our words, his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before, and solemnly warn you. So, two words. We'll look at the second one first. The word wrong there, that, that is the word that carries the moral element. The word conveys uh, the moral aspect of this. The, the Greek word means, I go beyond. Uh, it carries the idea, I've gone too far, and, and it's specifically referring to lust. You can relate to that when you've gone too far. You've clicked on that page that you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have clicked on. You looked at that picture you shouldn't have stared at. You made that phone call you shouldn't have made. You sent that text. You shouldn't have texted. Or you went to that place. You shouldn't have gone. That's the idea here. I, I've gone too far. 
The other word that I want to camp for just a moment on is, is, is akin to, they're not the same word, and, and he's, he's sort of doubling down but using a different word, and it's a, it's a very powerful word picture, and I don't want you to miss it. It's the word transgress. It's the only time this particular word is used in all the New Testament. The word literally means, wait for it, it means to step over. That's what it means. It means to step over. Now, it's hunting season. And so I, uh, I brought my gun with me. Okay? Don't worry. It's not loaded. I checked. But this is a gun I hunt with. I haven't hunted for a few years, but uh, enjoyed the sport. I've, I hunted for years before I became a Christian. And in those days, I took very, very little thought toward stepping over a fence to go onto somebody else's property and did it, to my shame, regularly. But that's the whole point. In order to get into somebody else's property, you always had to step over and usually the fence was pretty high and I can remember this like it was yesterday because of the feeling I had as a result of it uh, no trespassing we ignored it I don't know if we were going after pheasant or deer or what but the point is we went to the fence I put my gun down on the other side of the fence and leaned it against the fence and then climbed over right in front of my gun with my gun just like it is right now pointing right at my head I got over it, and then I realized, oh my goodness, I reached down, and I looked, and my safety was off with a shell in the chamber. I remember, even as an unsaved man, being completely arrested in the moment. I realized my gun was pointing at me. Listen, that's what some of you are doing right now. You've trespassed onto somebody else's property. And all the time, you're really just pointing your gun at yourself. You're going to shoot yourself. Don't trespass. Don't step over. There's a reason that fence is there. It's telling you something loud and clear. Stay out! It's not your property. You don't belong there. Get back to your home where you belong. Listen, we the church should not be afraid of the pandemic outside. We should be afraid of the endemic inside, the sexual endemic. And it's no surprise to me if what we're experiencing worldwide is because the church is not doing its job to keep people in check, to preach the gospel, the transforming work of the cross. And if you're one of those individuals, like the Thessalonians, you trusted Jesus, but the culture is such an allurement to you, you can't hardly pull yourself from it. Pull back.
There's a reason that fence is there. And Paul is saying that. And he gives that solemn warning in, in, uh, in the end of verse 6. The Lord is an avenger. Wow, what a, what a description. This is the reason why the writer of Hebrews says, the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Strong words. If you're there, run, flee, get away from the fence. Flee to the cross for forgiveness and salvation and joy and, yes, beauty. Because God is in the business of making beautiful people. There's a beauty from God that transcends your looks, transcends your body, transcends your health, and all the cool factor that goes along with that. So when others think of you, what comes to their mind? Your beautiful body, your beautiful health, your beautiful home, your beautiful stuff, or do they think of the beauty of Christ diffusing from your life and into the world? I read of a, just the other day of a Chinese man who returned to China having visited the States. One member of his family asked him if, if the United States had any idols. He'd spent a year here. He said, oh yeah, they got three of them. In the winter, they worship a fat man who, who dresses up in red. In the spring, they worship a rabbit. And in the fall, they sacrifice a turkey. Can you imagine what his family would have thought? That's not beautiful. Sanctification produces change. Beautiful change. Attractive change. Attracting others, not merely to oneself, but to one's God. So I would ask you as we conclude, look at your life. Is there this kind of beauty? God's beauty? We are to God, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the fragrance of Christ. Unto those who are being saved and unto those who are perishing. It matters not who we're with. The fragrance is the same. Consistent, impactful, beautiful. Beautiful believer. Are you one of them? How you looking? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage which reminds us of what a beautiful believer should look like. One who walks in holiness. Understanding that they will stand before you someday and between now and then to live for Jesus. That his life might diffuse from our lives. That we might attract others to you, dear God. And I pray that for the, the family at Sailorville Church and those who are watching from beyond. That they would, you would make a commitment right now in your living room, right now in your car, right now in your study, wherever you're at. Would you just say, God... Make me a diffuser of the fragrance of Jesus. Help me to be a doer and not just a hearer. Help me, Lord, to live a life that pleases you, committed to grow and not just know, pleasing you and not myself. 
led by your spirit, not by my personal passions. Oh God, help me to see those fences with big, neon, no trespassing signs on them and see those warnings and flee. And make me a beautiful believer. For your son Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.